Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and we are going to talk about fear. In fact, I actually have a guest who's written a book about fear and how to follow Jesus when the culture around us is basically adopting an attitude of fear, which, you know, in 2021 is probably a pretty good uh, topic to discuss. So I have Scott Bader Say on with me. He holds the Helen and Everett H. Jones Chair in Christian Ethics and Moral Theology and serves as Academic Dean at Seminary of the Southwest in Austin, Texas. He is author of several books, including Following Jesus in a Culture of Fear, which is the topic of today's conversation. Scott, thanks for joining me. Thanks. Great to be here. So (laughs) the timing of reading a book about living in fear in, in near the late end of the, you know, coronavirus pandemic is uh, only part of why I was interested in this. Other parts are that, you know, there's this general fear out there. But then, you know, even before the pandemic, we know that the media, politicians, and, you know, anybody who's in power, uh, people who want us to buy their their things, you know, their, their wares, they capitalize on getting people to fear not doing whatever it is that they want them to do. And so there's there's just this topic is broader than just, you know, the coronavirus, you know, pandemic fears and things like that. The other thing is, this is a book that, um, this is in its second edition. And if I had personally read this in 2007 when it was originally published, I actually, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I think I would have really disagreed with him on a few items that now I'm like, amen, man. So I've changed over the last you know decade or so, and I'm just like, oh wow! It was for me, it was a, a way for me to sort of reflect on how I've changed and how I personally don't live in fear on on a few things. And you know, those particular items happen to do with you know foreign policy. So you probably guess where I was before and where I am now. So tell us a little bit about how the book came about and whether or not did the rewrite or the updated edition happen before or after you know COVID kind of hit the U.S. Yeah, the original edition of the book actually arose out of reflection on 9-11. So the book, I probably started writing it around 2004. So we were still pretty, pretty much in the throes of various kinds of responses to 9-11. I think the, the cultural fear, the political fear around that was still really high. So I began working on it with that in mind. And really what happened is I, I was looking at this, this cultural experience of fear And I was thinking theologically about the doctrine of providence. So the chapters on providence in the middle of the book were really the core. That was kind of where I started trying to bring together this cultural moment and these convictions about God's providence. Mm. It seemed to me that providence is a way for us to try to hold on to some sense of God's presence, some sense of God's activity in the world. The world isn't just sort of careening out of control even at a time when it felt a little bit like that's what was happening. And Mm -hmm. not only were there legitimate fears that we were feeling, there were also, as you noted, manipulated fears. And, you know, that's usually how manipulated fear happens. It starts with something that's a real fear. 
Yeah. So it begins with the thing that you might actually legitimately be afraid of, but then it magnifies it. And through magnifying that fear, through amping up that fear, then we're directed toward a solution, whether it's political or whether it's a product we need to buy, whether it's a religious viewpoint we need to hold. And then the fear sort of drives us into the arms of the solution, which it turns out isn't necessarily a solution that was constructed for our good. It was a solution constructed for somebody else's good. And Mm. finding a way to do that discernment work around manipulated fear and being attentive to where the real legitimate fears were located and how can we speak to those, how can we get beyond being controlled by those, all of those things were in my mind as I was drafting the first edition of this. And and part of why it felt so important to get something out into a wider public conversation, specifically into the church's thinking and reflection about our political moment, our cultural moment, how we were experiencing the world at the time. Yeah. And so what about the the updated version? How, how How did that come about? Yeah. So the updated version, I began working on it before the pandemic hit. And it was largely done by the time the pandemic hit. There were, there were a few, I was still doing some edits. So there were some places I could acknowledge this new fear that had emerged. But largely what I was trying to do is to update the text. So to help folks think about the fears that have now become current, maybe 9-11 has fallen into the background of things that make us actively fearful right now. But there are other things that have arisen to take its place even the ways that, that Islam and, and Muslims still to some extent among some people or some groups are seen with a level of fear that I think tracks back to 9-11. Mm-hmm. But the actual events of 9-11 don't tend to be at the forefront of our fears. But a lot of other things had, had stepped into that place. And I think prior to the pandemic, I was really a- attentive to the ways that national identity and migration and globalization we're all at play creating a lot of fear on every side. Global migration related to the connectivity of wider globalization connected now increasingly in various ways to climate change or other sort of economic struggles that are happening. We're seeing these these various migrations around the globe and we're seeing countries and even entire regions like Europe as a whole trying to figure out how do you sustain identity in the midst of migration? And these are tough questions. There's not a simple answer to that because because fears around losing identity are legitimate and real fears. The fears of people who are migrating from places of either violence or economic struggle, they're experiencing real fears. So how do we speak to the ways that those fears are creating this place of conflict, not just in the US, but around the globe? That felt like it was at the forefront of what I wanted to engage. And then the pandemic came along. And even before that, a host of instances of racial violence that needed to be engaged and was also creating various levels of fear. And again, fear on every side. It's not as if only one side has legitimate fear and the other side has illegitimate fear. Real fears were happening everywhere. And our capacity to engage those tends to be really low because we don't really Mm, trust each other to name our fears, we tend to want to move from the place of of a kind of aggressive posture rather than the vulnerability that comes with admitting that what's going on makes me afraid and there are things I'm afraid of losing. That creates a different conversation, but it's not a conversation we often have. 
Uh, so yeah. all of these things were were in play, and I tried to address them in the book. I also realized as I was writing this updated edition that I just needed a chapter when I talked about trust. I looked back and I thought, well, why would you write about fear and not have a book, uh, have a chapter about trust? Mm. So thinking about the role of trust in helping us overcome fear had increasingly felt important to me. So I added in a chapter about that. And then the last thing that was important in this revision was a recognition that I had when I was speaking to an Islamic center in Toronto. And I had been presenting on themes from this book for quite a while. And so they asked me to come speak. I brought kind of the standard presentation that unpacked themes that I'd already worked on in the book and tried to apply them in that context. But it became clear to me as I was doing this presentation that I wasn't talking to a group of people who were fearing too much and needed to find ways to fear less. I was talking to a group of people who were fearful because they had become the object of some other people's mm. exaggerated fear. And so I started to think about what it would be like to imagine or engage the fear question from the perspective of those who are feared. And it made me realize that I'm in a position of relative safety, given all of the ways that my life is constructed and all of the particular things I have in terms of of home, job, family, and so forth, I have a level of stability that allows me then to pay attention to where my fear may be overwhelming me and may need to be sort of put at bay. But I'm not in a situation where I live in a level of fearfulness that some other people do. And I tried to be attentive to that distinction in my readership as I went through this revision. Have you found that being able to do that has helped you sort of see the, you mentioned you, you know, there's fear on both sides over the last year. When you're dealing with individuals personally, like when you're communicating with people, whether it's, you know, people you know, or just, you know, people you meet, I can imagine for you, it is easy to identify with their fears or empathize with their fears without being, you know, like, oh, yo, you're a, your fears are unfounded. I mean, sometimes my, my brain goes to, oh, well, you know, the data show that, you're not likely to be killed in a terrorist attack or that, you know, if you get a vaccine, the blood clot rate is, you know, a complication rate is extremely low compared to if you didn't have the vaccine and got COVID. And like my brain goes to like just give factual data, but how has that affected, you know, writing this book and so forth affected your ability to like relate to people who are living in fear? Yeah, I think it has, it has helped me just have an imagination of, where fears come from, and therefore it's helping me be attentive to the various ways that fears are going to emerge among people whose experiences I don't understand or experiences I haven't had. So on the one hand, I feel like I am reflecting on this writing, but also, you know, the sort of personal work that goes into thinking about and writing about these topics. I feel like I'm in a place where I empathize more than I probably did with other people's fears. But I'm also aware of, of a response that's not unlike yours. Because I've done a lot of thinking about how we sort of put fear in its place when it starts overwhelming us, you know, I have to resist the desire to fix somebody else's fear. Mm. And, you know, citing data, as you know, you know, citing data can be a really good way to calm one's own fears. But if somebody else cites data to you, it doesn't always work the same way, right? It can mm -hmm. feel kind of dismissive. 
So figuring out how to do that with another person can be kind of tricky. One of the things that I think of along these lines is uh, work that Jonathan Haidt has done on moral disagreement. And, you know, he talks about how we actually engage in real change or persuasion or the ways that we can actually influence one another in conversation and relationship. And one of the points that he makes that, that seems to be right on is that if we begin talking with one another from a place of just trying to persuade someone through our reasoning, it just doesn't work. But in fact, if we begin by creating relationship, by finding some sort of connection, then the ability to reason with one another opens up. So maybe at some point I earn a place in a relationship to then ask the question about a fear that doesn't match what the data shows, Mm -hmm. a fear that's way exaggerated in relation to the probability of being involved in a terrorist attack. But leading with that doesn't always work. So finding those ways to make the emotional connection feels important if we're going to help one another out of the fears that are binding us. Yeah. So as a, as a sort of overall view, how would you describe the way in which our modern mindset has been ruled by or affected by fear? I mean, some, some of us, are, you know, it's kind of obvious to think about some of the more recent examples, like during the pandemic, there's a, there's a, a legitimate threat to some or many or all of us. But, you know, thinking outside of that, what are some ways in which we do live in fear that maybe we actually don't even recognize? I mean, some people do live in fear of like, a, a, you know, maybe not a terrorist attack or something like that. Some people live in other types of fear that are more personal than uh, existential. So I don't know if you can just give us kind of an overview of those things. Yeah, I think you're right that there's a wide variety of fears that folks experience. And some of them are political, some of them are, are cultural, some of them have to do with losing a particular kind of cultural status or power. Some of them have to do with particular political issues. But I think you're right that a lot of them are, are very personal. A lot of them have to do with, with our families, say. I think, you know, in, in my own life, I find my fears often directed toward my children. Mm-hmm. You know, what are their lives going to be like? How can I prepare them for the world they're stepping into? Have I parented them well enough? for them to launch and and be on their own? What sort of dangers are out there that they're facing that I didn't have to face? So I'm really attentive to that. And I think that's where, where a fair amount of my anxiety tends to live. And that's probably true for uh, a good number of parents. I talk in the book about my experience of becoming a parent for the first time and and my wife and I sort of discovering all the things we have to be afraid of once you have responsibility for a child. and And I think that is partly just real. I've got the responsibility for a child and this is huge. And also it gets exaggerated and manipulated because there's a whole industry that wants to sell us safety devices and (laughs) and wants us to buy their books on how to keep your child safe. So figuring out how to tease those things apart became really important for us and, and continues to be important as we think about, as I think about my relationship to my kids and what I fear. You know, there's also fear around performance. People fear failure. There's a lot of fear tied up in who we think we need to be, what success looks like. So I think a lot of those personal fears uh, roll around in the back of our minds, sometimes in ways that we're not particularly aware of. The larger landscape of fear, I think we're likely to be attentive to because it's what we experience when we 
turn on the news or when we read the news, all these voices, right? When uh, through our social media feeds, we become very aware of what's around us to be afraid of in the wider cultural and Mm -hmm. political sense. But the other stuff can rumble around in our minds and affect us in ways that we're not quite aware of. I think the people profiting from fear is something that is always a mixed bag because, you know, people do need to keep their babies safe. People do need to have, you could call them gadgets or you could call them necessities, ways in which their lives are created to, you know, they need one thing and I might look at that item and say, oh, well, I don't need that to protect my baby because my life is not like that or whatever. So the, the market for goods that protect us or that make us feel safe, in my mind, it's kind of a mixed bag because like to some extent you need some of those things. On the other hand, it's like, well, how, how are my fears being played on? I mean, how does one actually go through and make a decision on, okay, they're just playing on my fears. I'm not buying that. Or like, oh, wow, I can sort of see that they're playing on my fears, but like, yeah, that really does match up with, you know, something that I experience. What do you think about the mixture there? That's exactly true. And I think one of the dangers is when we imagine that we really shouldn't fear anything, that the goal would be, let's just be fearless. And sometimes if you wander through a self-help section of a bookstore, you'll see a good number of books that contrast fear and love. And either you approach the world through love or you approach the world through fear, and the two are entirely opposed to each other. Mm -hmm. And so if that's the way you think about you know, the various ways of of living and seeing the world around us, then fear is just always a problem. And the goal is just always to get rid of it. But we're human beings. And it seems just built into human nature that we fear. And I think it doesn't take us too long to begin to describe the ways that fear is really useful. Because fear helps us attend to the ways that things we love can be threatened. Whether it's people, whether it's our own life, whether it's practices or institutions or ideas that we love and want to sustain, when those get threatened, we feel fear and that's just the right response. Mm. So recognizing that fear is okay, the way Thomas Aquinas puts it, is that fear is born of love. Fear is born of love. They're not in conflict, but the more you love, the more you have to be afraid of. The more you extend your life in love, the more things you might lose. So fear is connected with love. We can't undo that. So figuring out how to tease apart the fears that help us respond well and protect the goods that are in our lives and the goods that Mm -hmm. are around us and the fears that are just manipulated and are dragging us down or drawing out our resources for somebody else's gain, pulling those things apart is not easy. But I think there are ways to do that that we can sort of go through not exactly a checklist, but but ways of kind of testing our fears. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them, and this also comes from Thomas Aquinas, is to ask ourselves, is the thing I'm afraid of losing actually something that is good in itself? So if I, if I have a lot of wealth, and I really love holding on to my wealth, and there's something that comes along that threatens my wealth, well, is that an appropriate time to feel fear if in fact the thing that it's threatening is probably something I shouldn't love quite as much as I do. Or if I have a certain position of power, power can be used in all sorts of good ways and not so good ways, but maybe I have a position of power that I I really enjoy my capacity to wield that power. And in some way that power gets threatened or that status gets threatened. 
Aquinas would say the first thing is to ask yourself, is that power and status itself a good? Is it serving a wider good than just your own enjoyment of holding power? And if it's not really serving a good, then maybe you don't need to fear its loss because its loss might actually be good for you. So Aquinas asks us to ask that question, which I don't think we always ask. But Mm -hmm. there are other questions, too, to ask about, you know, how imminent is the threat? Is this likely to happen? And is it likely to happen soon? So um, what you said about, you know, being in a terrorist attack or, you know, how likely is it that I'm going to die in a plane crash? Not very likely. Dying in a plane crash sounds pretty horrible. And so the magnitude is great, but the likelihood is really low. So being able to go through some of these questions in our minds, and even then, I would say, using certain kinds of practices like contemplative prayer. I mean, some of this is right brain and some of it is left brain. Some of it is kind of rational and some of it is spiritual to help us tease these things out. And I think we need to to attend to both of these things as ways of discerning, what do I do with this fear? Mm -hmm. And when I detect a legitimate fear of something that threatens a good, then being prudent. What's a prudent response? What's a response that reflects practical wisdom which allows us to take the fear into account and not to be determined by it. And that's where the virtue of courage becomes really important. Can I approach this thing that is feared? Can I continue to seek the good in the face of something that feels threatening? And can I make a discernment about how to take that threat seriously, not be reckless or foolhardy, and also to not let it keep me from doing what I'm called to do. And, and as a Christian, how do I not let it keep me from living as a disciple of Christ in some of the ways that he calls us into risky modes of service to one another? You know, you, you talked about courage in the book, and I am glad you brought it up because there's more than just the individual will within to be courageous, that it's tied up in how we relate and how we are in community with one another. And you also talk about how the church is not always a great place where we can be vulnerable and we can voice our fears. Oftentimes we're, you know, and this is partly because we're human. Uh, well, actually, it's all because we're human, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, is that we we actually don't give people space to have legitimate fears or to express their fears and kind of walk together in that. And so the approach that you seem to take or angle, or I don't know how to put it, but is that it's not just something that we need to do on our own and find a way to follow Jesus just by, you know, just by ourselves, and, you know, make our own personal decisions that these are, these are things that are also tied up and bound in community in a very important way. Right. It's really hard to be courageous by yourself. Not impossible, but it's really hard when we're, surrounded by a community that helps us discern what a courageous act looks like and helps us name our fears. Again, that's hard to do simply by yourself. Being able to name the fears you have with another person is a powerful way of releasing fear's grip. It doesn't make the fear go away, but articulating it can allow us to reflect on it. It allows it to become an object of conversation, whereas uh, unarticulated fear simply continues to control us sometimes in ways that we're not even aware of. So having a community where we can name our fears, that means you have a community of people and you need to create church communities that are capable of that level of sharing and vulnerability. Not every church is able to do that. And sometimes within a church, you can find small group communities that can make that happen. 
But having folks with whom you can name your fears, I, I think is crucial. Our church communities have a way of bringing us into that vulnerability because in many of our churches, we read or pray the Psalms. And the psalmists just don't hold back. If they're afraid of something, it's out there. If they're worried about something, if they're in pain or suffering over something, it's just all out there on the page. And I think that gives us a model for being able to speak these things aloud to each other. But it's not only speaking these things, it's also the support we get from one another that helps us be more courageous than we could be by ourselves. And I'm thinking, say, of the ways that we might engage risky acts of self-giving, whether that might be radical self-giving of our goods and resources or actions that might lead us to in, into conflict with certain kinds of powers. So acts of protest, for instance, where we might end up losing something. We might end up, we might end up in jail. We might end up having given away goods that we had sort of stocked away for retirement, but because of the need that's in front of us, we give generously and courageously, and we press back against the fear of what's going to happen if I lose these things? What's going to happen if I, if I go to jail for an act of protest? What's going to happen if I'm generous and then my 401k doesn't look as good as it did before? Mm. If we have a community to surround us, then the losses that we fear through courageous action can be gathered up by that community. We have a group of people who are able and willing to sustain us through those losses. And I think we're, we tend to live in a very individualistic society that doesn't assume we are going to sustain one another. I think about the ways that we move toward our old age and retirement with the assumption that we're kind of on our own and we better have saved up enough in order to live some sort of life of not only a life of, of meaning, but a level of comfort that makes that meaningful life possible. We're not sure we can rely on other people to do that. We're not even sure we can rely on our children to step forward and do that. And so you hear older people talking about, you know, worrying that they'll be a burden to others. But this then, this worry, this fear, then tempts us to accumulate as much as we can to stave off that worry, which can make it hard to be generous in the present. And that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, I, instead of telling my kids, I don't want to be a burden to them, I just, I just tell them right off the bat, like, hey, kids, I'm going to be a burden to you. And, and that's okay, because you, you were a burden to me. And so it's just all going to be fair in the end. And so, so I, I think... Um, I, like, I like that approach, Scott. That's, that's, uh, I think I'm going to do that. It's just straight up, you know, I just want to be honest. But it, it sort of reinscribes the assumption that maybe was there at some earlier time and maybe is not there for a lot of us today. Yeah. That as families, we, we're there to sustain each other uh, in the early days of our lives when we can't do for ourselves and in the later periods of our lives when we, again, feel vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's just a, a sort of family example of the kind of community that can help us be courageous now because we know somebody has our back. Yeah, no, those are, those are good thoughts. I want to get to the topic of providence a little bit. Before we do that, I'm going to kind of do like an... This is not connected to what we just talked about, nor is it really connected to providence, maybe. But it has to do with the Christian subculture of fear. 
that's really stood out to me when you described it in the book. And I'm like, oh, wow, that, yeah, that's true. And I didn't know that. When I was a kid and, you know, I would love to go to Christian bookstores and I would see, you know, things that I would be interested in reading and or watching or listening to at the time, you know, back then when you bought music in stores. And, you know, at some point in like, I guess my late 20s, I started to realize how consumerist that whole project is. And I just didn't like going to them anymore. You know, I could find what I needed either on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or in places that I realize those are little sections, you know, in Barnes and Noble that are the same kind of things. But there wasn't, you know, so much swag with, you know, Bible verses printed on it. And, I, and I'm not saying that those things are all bad, but I could just sense that there was this consumerist impulse that is probably unhealthy and un, unfitting of, you know, true Christianity. And, you know, in your book, you talk about how it is actually a byproduct of Christians living in fear, or maybe that's not the right way to put it. Maybe you can state it correctly for me, but I just wanted to talk a little bit about that before we get on to the Providence thing. I think sometimes Christian communities, because they're afraid of the ways that culture might impinge upon their ability to live faithfully, will withdraw into a kind of enclave in which we feel like we can fend off these cultural forces that we're afraid are going to stand against us. We're afraid that they're going to, to change us, destroy us, tempt us. And so we can pull back into an enclave. And then within the enclave, instead of all the ways that we might go out and engage the culture around us and maybe be salt and leaven, we pull back out of fear. And so we, we replicate certain aspects of the culture that we've now tried to leave behind. So whether it's whether it's swag and the and the Christian bookstore or the you know the coffee shop that's right there in your church building, the gymnasium where you have Christian basketball leagues, the various ways that we end up then replicating the kinds of social engagement, social interaction we might have out in the world, some of the good things and some of the not so good things, we replicate it because we feel like we need to create a subculture that's all our own. But in so doing, as you note, we also replicate all of the consumerism, all of the ways that we create identity out of commodification, and we lose the chance to be present in the culture, again, to use those metaphors of, of leaven and salt and light, because we've pulled back into a place where we're trying to maintain identity and we fear that the culture is going to tempt us and lead us astray. And in that way, I think we, we lose this capacity to have an impact on the culture around us and we replicate its yeah. fear. I think the, the defense of, you know, somebody listening might disagree here would, would say something along the lines of, well, you know, when my kids are younger, they're in their formative years. And so for the purposes of formation, I want them to be surrounded by, you know, authenticity or, or you know, a Christian ethic, a Christian life, a Christian word. And as they get older, they will be able to carry that into the culture. I've actually heard that as a sort of defense for Christian subculture. What do you, do you have any thoughts on that? I think there's a lot of legitimate fear at play there. So I would, I would want to talk to this interlocutor about what it is they're afraid of and to be able to acknowledge, yeah, some of that is really legitimate. And some of the ways you're trying to deal with that makes a lot of sense to me. And let's talk about some of the ways that 
children raised in this subculture also might have, might lose particular kinds of viewpoints or skills, might lose an engagement with a, a wider world and a wider conversation that can, in the end, be strengthening of faith, can, in the end, help us deepen and stretch our faith. There are a lot of ways of being human, and if we don't encounter those, it's easy to come away at some point feeling like I've sort of cornered the market on the right way of knowing God, the right way of living, the right way of believing. So I wouldn't tell that person that they're wrong. I would just say, let's let's look at where the fear is legitimate, and let's also look at some of the ways that this response to fear might actually be creating its own problems. Hmm. Yeah, well, I, I like that answer. So this might feel abrupt because I, I want to get to talking about Providence and I don't want to spend too much time transitioning <laughs> with my own commentary here. So I'm just going to do a hard pivot here and talk about, you mentioned earlier in the in this conversation that the book originated in some sense out of a reflection about divine providence. And I, back when so you said that was about 2004, you started writing these. I remember back then that a lot of the Christian theology books that were being written or just Christian books that were being written with respect to providence were a lot less about how do we live in a world where we need to rely on God's providence, but more like, you know, problems of theodicy and, you know, they're kind of delving into like the, the deeper philosophical and theological things. And so when, when I'm reading this section in your book about providence, it was it related a little bit more to the experiences that I've had as a Christian in, you know, times where fear either took over or bad things happened. And there's that little bit of like, or not a little bit, but there's that, there's that connection to who is God in relationship to me. So I'll let you talk a little about the nature of providence and narrative in dealing with fear. And, you know, again, back to the title, following Jesus, where there's a culture of fear around us. I think providence became a really tricky doctrine, a really tricky thing to believe in as we move into the modern era. If you look back at, say, the Reformation writers, you look back at Calvin or you look back to Aquinas, look back to Augustine, you find writers who seem fairly comfortable saying that everything that happens is in some sense caused by God actively caused or passively allowed, and that either we have no way of knowing why, or we can trust that all of it in the end uh, has a purpose. What began to happen in modernity, as at least in Western culture, we began to see various ways of describing what's happening in the world, various ways of telling the story of history, some of which had reference to God and some of which had no reference to God. And as we looked at these various ways of telling the story of history, it became possible to look at certain kinds of events, especially really awful events, and see them as embedded in particular kinds of human actions of cause and effect, and not necessarily having to overlay a theological conviction about God being at work in making that thing happen. So if you think back to whether it's natural disasters, whether it's genocide, or whatever it is that you might think, wow, here is like a high level of a horrific thing happening in the world. And I think for many of us, we look at those things and we say, it's really hard 
to simply say God wanted this to happen or to simply say God could have stopped this but decided not to. Now, that's the point at which, as you know, we could move into a long philosophical conversation about theodicy, about, right, uh, right. about free will. And that's one way of taking the conversation, but I think it moves it into a realm where it becomes less and less something that can help us in Christian practice. So what I tried to do was to break out of that conversation, a conversation in which it either felt like God was doing everything or God was nowhere to be found. And to ask, is there a way in which we can continue to affirm God is present, God is active in the world, without having to lay at God's feet every awful thing that has happened? So this is where I tried to carve out a way of thinking that really rested in this root word of providence, which is provision. What if providence is fundamentally about God's willingness and desire to provide for us? And God provides for us in all sorts of situations, even situations that God would not have desired to have happened. So I'm thinking all the way back to to Genesis. It doesn't take long for something to happen that God didn't want to have happen. By Genesis 3, uh, human beings are going against what God has desired for them and commanded them. So clearly God's not making everything happen just right even from the first three chapters of Genesis. And it goes on from there in which we see all sorts of things happen that are not consistent with God's character or God's command. The story of Joseph, I think, is an interesting example of this because Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers. He is imprisoned in Egypt. Things look really, really bad for Joseph. Eventually, though, things turn around. Joseph can interpret dreams, which is a really great thing for the Pharaoh. So, Joseph rises to uh, a position of power from which he's then able to help his brothers, his family, his fellow Israelites. And through this, by the end, Joseph is able to say, God was at work in this. Now, Joseph doesn't say, God thought it was a great idea for me to get sold into slavery and unjustly imprisoned. But he does say that somehow God was drawing us toward a place where I could be a source of sustenance, a source of saving my own family, tribe, and tradition because of being here in Egypt. And from that, and from, say, Romans 8, 28, where where Paul speaks of God as working good through all things for those who are called by God according to God's purposes. This idea that God can work good through all things, and this idea that God can pull Joseph into a place of into a saving place from a place of, you know, these awful things his brother did to him, I think suggests that God has this action of pulling history forward, that God has both a capacity and a desire to lead us on toward the good end God desires for us. And it doesn't mean that God is pushing history from behind, that God is just making everything happen so that in the end something good might come. So reshaping that push-pull really helped me think differently about providence. I don't have to blame God for every bad thing that happened, but I can see God's hand in pulling good out of bad things that happen. Mm -hmm. And in that drawing out of good, God is providing for us in very tangible ways so that we are not only sustained, but we're made capable of continuing to bear witness to who God is. And that really came to be the heart of, of how I rethought providence. Nice. 
Well, Scott, I have like a gajillion more questions. Okay, I don't have a gajillion. I have like five or six, but they would take us a lot more time than than we have here. So I just want to thank you so much for joining me to have this conversation and for, you know, talking about this very relevant issue. So, you know, for our listeners, the, the book is Following Jesus in a Culture of Fear, Choosing Trust Over Safety in an Anxious Age. And our guest today has been Scott Bader Say. Scott, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Doug. I've enjoyed our time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.